This morning we began a three-part series uh, that is trying to answer a very important question. Why did God the Son become man in Jesus? And we learned that the first answer to this question uh, there in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 to 15, which says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, himself partook of the same things that through death he might become the one who has the power, he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, we learned that verse 14 to 15 is teaching us that God the Son became man to destroy the devil by delivering us from the power of death. This evening we are going to learn the second benefit from this section of why God became man, and it is in verse 16 to verse 17. God became man, essentially what those verses are saying, God became man to be the sacrifice for our sin. Look at verse 16 to 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For the third time in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says in verse 17 that the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus, became a human being like the children God gave him. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, verse 17 says, in every respect, it says, in every respect. The Lord Jesus did not become some other kind of human. He did not come as humanity 2.0. He came like us in every human respect. The humanity of Jesus is our humanity. To be more exact, is the only true human, in fact. Because he put on our humanity without putting on our sin. Jesus is a sinless human being that we were created by God to be. But why did God the Son, the eternal Son of God, become a real human being? Why did the infinite put on our finitude? Why does omnipotence now wear our weakness? Well, the answer is in the rest of verse 17, isn't it? God the Son became man because he came to make propitiation for the sins of the children God gave him. Therefore, verse 17 says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Two teenage boys uh, were recently stabbed to death just one mile from each other. One of them actually lived on the same road as our previous church in Thamesmead. Not far. In fact, when I saw the photo news shopper, I immediately recognized a tree. It's right next to the church. 
Catherine Brown, who lives on Titmas Avenue, says, Crime is now so bad in Thamesmead, she doesn't go out at night. And it immediately forced me to ask the question, what is wrong with Thamesmead now? What is wrong with it? In another news story I read, the police are looking, not far from Thamesmead, looking for two men who robbed a 77-year-old man at cash point for 500 pounds in Woolwich. Just like that, broad daylight. It forced me to ask the question, what sort of person robs vulnerable people? What have we become? I read another story of a preacher who claims to have performed miracles um, and he has just been found out guilty of fraud for selling for it, plague protection oil as a bogus cure for COVID-19. Climate, his name is interesting. His name is Climate Wise Man. <laughs> you couldn't make it up, isn't it? Climate Wise Man, the lead pastor at Kingdom Church in Camberwell, taught his church members that they may die without his, without his 91 pound miracle oil cure. He told the court that God told him in a vision that he's a prophet who can cure COVID-19. It forced me to ask the question, what sort of man abuses God himself with such lies? There is something wrong with human beings, isn't there? No matter where we look, in London or Kiev, in Moscow or Lusaka, there's something wrong with human beings. We see it all in the news. Something has gone terribly wrong. In fact, it's even getting worse. And if we're honest, the problem is not just out there. There is something wrong with all of us, really. None of us are what we should be. And that should force us to ask the question, why are we like this? And the Bible says the problem with us started in the Garden of Eden. All of us have inherited a spiritual disease that just gets worse and worse. We inherited it from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God. All of us are infected by sin. We not only walk with the word sinner tattooed on our foreheads, we are hostages of sin. We are under the power of sin. Paul writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 12, puts it like this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 12. He says this. He poses question, doesn't he? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. We have already judged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's interesting, Paul there, by the way, verse 12 says, they've all become worthless. And you know, one of the, name of the, de- the, name of, one of the names for the devil is Bilal which means worthlessness. We might even say, Paul is saying together they have become demonic. No one does good, 
Not even one. What the Bible is saying is, yes, you are born in sin, all of us are, and you die in sin. Your life is full of sin, word, thought, and deed. Whatever your age or beliefs, you are a sinner. We are all sinners. And our sin in society especially is getting worse and worse. Sadly, one of the tragic results of sin in our lives is that the average sinner has little understanding of just how serious the problem of sin is. There is very little sense of the guilty of sin or just how heinous the problem of sin itself is and what terrible punishment sin has brought to us. Sin is not something people in our society think about anymore. There was a time when people in these islands trembled at the thought of sin. But today, sin is something we celebrate. Today, we don't think sin is at the heart of what is wrong with our personal and national life. We don't think sin explains people's behavior. The tragedy of sin is not talked about in our schools and universities. This truth that we are sinners does not shape government's economic policy. It is not at the heart of our criminal justice system. It is not at the heart of our education policy. It is not about, it's not, it doesn't, it's not factored in in terms of how society thinks about helping individuals and families in difficulties. It is not even at the heart of how we parent our children. And sadly, I have to say, even for professing Christian, sin isn't even at the heart of how we organize our lives every day. We do not hear about this truth that we are sinners talked about on TV and radios and our favorite newspapers. Why is that, by the way? Why is it that there is sin, but we don't talk about it? Well, the answer is because we are sinners. Sin suppresses true knowledge of sin, Romans 1. Sin does not want to be found out and hated. As Samus says. And it especially doesn't want to be found out in our world today. We don't even want sin preached on. Other sins, but not our sins. We live in a society that is not only anti-authority, but one where we are always told, you are basically good at the core. And yet the Bible says here, uh, we are all sinners. It does not matter how many good things we do, we are all moral failures in the eyes of the living God. That's the starting point. Why are we moral failures? Well, because the Bible is not comparing us to other people. It is comparing us to the holy and righteous God. His standard. And all of us have failed God's perfect and holy standard. You are a moral failure as you sit here this evening because you do not treat God as he deserves to be treated. God is your father, but you don't respect God in the way you live. You can't help it. You have already sinned many times today. God is perfectly good, isn't he? Holy, righteous, kind, and full of majesty, but we do not put him first. If we put God first, 
churches up and down the country will be full this evening. We live only for us. You live like God is a fool. That's how we live. We do not honor the God who created us. And therefore we find it so easy to break his commands. We lie, last and still. But you know when we think of sin, it is worse than that. Because you see, we do not just, we're not just, we do not just sin. Sin is our identity. Just as we can't change our physical skin, we cannot stop sinning. Sin is our spiritual skin. We are all by nature dead in sin, cut off from the very life of God our maker. And the result of our spiritual condition is that we are under everlasting punishment. As we were reminded this morning, Romans 2, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. This is a natural predicament of all human beings. And the question this raises is, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for us to be forgiven of our sins and be restored to God? Well, the only way we can have life with God is, for, uh, is to pay the penalty for our sin. And the Bible says we need a sacrifice that God will accept to pay for our sin against him. The wages of sin is death, so we need a human sacrifice. We need a human life for our human life. A perfect human being has to die in our place. But of course, no human being can die for another because all of us are sinners. And so we read in the Old Testament that God gave his chosen people, Israel, a temporary solution. Every year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go up in the temple and would sacrifice bulls and goats to pay for the sins of the people. But that solution is only temporary, isn't it? Because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this. Chapter 10, verse 1 to 4 reminds us, doesn't it? He says in chapter 10, verse 1 to 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It just does this on the entire Old Testament. Cancelled. Otherwise, it says, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, good as they are, there is a reminder, isn't there, of sins every year, he says. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying animals cannot pay the sacrifice for human beings because their quality of life is different first and foremost. What we need is a perfect human being to be sacrificed for our sins before God. And that sacrifice must have the potential to save every person God wants to save. In other words, we need someone like us, someone human to atone for our human sin. But his life must have infinite worth to save all whom God gave him. 
At the same time, because our sin, you see, has eternal consequence, His sacrifice must be eternal. And therefore, we are faced with this infinite potential, horizontal, infinite potential, vertical, you might say. In space and time, it must have that potential. Not only to save today, but eternally. It must be capable of paying for sins forever. And only God is eternal. So again, the sacrifice for sin, God who accept must be 100% human. Must be a man who is 100% human and a man who is 100% God. Human because we are sinners who have sinned. And God because only God can serve with infinite capacity. Only the God-man can die for our sins. And, that, and this passage we are looking at today, in this passage in Hebrews 2 verse 16 to 17, it is saying that God the Son has put on our human flesh to be this perfect sacrifice. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. The writer of the Hebrews is saying to his readers, Jewish readers, God the Son has not come as an angel to help angels. Jesus did not come for angels. He came to help you. Jesus came to deal with human sin. That's why he dressed himself in your human flesh. Dare I say, in your Jewish flesh. That first Christmas. He came to be your sacrifice for sin. He came as your propitiation. To be a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sinners and turn it to our favor. This is what he did for you. Not just for Jewish Christians, but for all who truly believe in Jesus. God is angry with your sin, the writer of Hebrews is saying. And he has sentenced you to everlasting flames for your sin. But our Lord Jesus came to suffer the very punishment of God for you. Jesus has not just come to set you free from the punishment of your sin. That's a great thing, isn't it? He's saying Jesus adds something extra. It's propitiation. Which means sin cancelled and favor added on top. You are now favored by God. You are now true children of Abraham. And for us, we are now true children of Abraham, of course. Gentile believers, through Abraham, true children of God's family. Not because we are Jewish, but because Christ is now our high priest and sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, the priests were the ones who made sacrifice for Sin by offering to God temporary sacrifices would never really take away sin. We've read there in Hebrews 10. Jesus comes, doesn't he? As our high priest. And we'll talk about this more next Sunday evening. But he comes as a merciful one. A faithful high priest. Who willingly gives himself to God as a sacrifice in our place. So that we can have life with God forever. Therefore, he had to be made, the writer of Hebrews says, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful 
high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You know, this wonderful truth immediately tells us that all human beings must abandon any effort to earn our way to God. It is future and it is foolish. It is futile because we can't make our way to God on our own. It is foolish because we don't have to make our way to God. God has made his way where there seems to be no way. God has become our man. Our propitiation. He has come as our Elasmus. The sacrifice that bears the wrath of God and turns it to our faith. And what Christmas demands is that we bring ourselves to God, doesn't it? And plead the blood of Jesus to save us from sin. Nothing else will do. There is no religion, no idea that can make any person clean before God. You know, there's a program on Netflix uh, I like watching called The 72 Most Dangerous Places uh, in the World. And one of the places mentioned there uh, is the River Ganges, right? Where the Hindu festival, Kumbamela, is held, right? Uh, over 100 million devotees, they go there to bathe for forgiveness of their sins at this meeting point of three rivers. And as you think about that festival, the irony, of course, is the Hindus wash in the Ganges River for spiritual cleansing, a river that ranks in the top five of the most polluted rivers on the planet. Dysentery, cholera, hepatitis, diarrhea. One of the leading causes of death among kids in India, diarrhea, can all be contracted from the Ganges River. Hindus seek washing over their sins from one of the filthiest, most filthy places in the world. But Christmas says to us, doesn't it? You don't need a dirty river. You need a person. And this person is God the Son, Jesus. He has come as our perfect high priest before God to offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sin before God. The good news of Christmas is that we don't need to make any pilgrimage to God. He has made the pilgrimage to us in Jesus to wash our sins. The Bible is saying to our true followers of Christ here today, God the Son became man in Jesus to bear the wrath of God against your sin. Our Lord Jesus has atoned for your sin and has cleansed you forever. And he's keeping you clean for all eternity and in a perfect relationship with God. Don't get tired of hearing that. Because that's the gospel. That's what should animate you every day. There's no other message apart from that. If you want something else to excite you, it's not that. It's not the gospel. That is the gospel. That is what should get you up in the morning. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the message of Christmas. God became man to be our sacrifice. And dare I say, it's not just the message for the unbelieving world. It's first and foremost written to children of God. This is our message this Christmas we need to hear. And so the first thing you need to do in hearing that is just to let this truth overwhelm you with praise and thanksgiving and adoration. Adore, as I said this morning, adore God the Son, our Lord Jesus, for this. God put on your flesh to be sacrificed for you. He came to take all your filth and sin. He came to be your propitiation. To die your death for you. Jesus knew up front the burden of your sin. He knew up front all the wrath of God that was going to be unleashed on him at Calvary. And he still came for you. In all your weakness, in all your lethargy, in all your lack of concern for him, he still came knowing even after he purchases you on that cross, you are not going to be as excited about him as you should be. And he still came. He willingly allowed himself to wear your sin on that cross. He can, so he can save you. So that you can have life with God. He suffered the eternal violence of the Holy God. So that you may share his divine life. What amazing grace. Wow, amazing grace. You know, the Puritan Shannon says the love of Jesus opened, the che- opened his chest to receive in his own heart the sharp edge of that holy sword which was directed against us. That's the Puritan way of saying Jesus took the bullet for me. This Christmas, let us let the love of Christ overwhelm us. Let us love and praise our Lord Jesus for his love and mercy to us. Let us drown in this amazing grace that we have such a high priest like Christ. As the hymn writer prays in one of the songs, she says this, O wonder of all wonders, that through your death for me, my open sins and my secret sins can all forgiven be, she says. And then the chorus comes, doesn't it? Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Those words were written by Catherine Agnes May Kelly. The prayer that all followers of Jesus should utter before God this Christmas and every day. Let us our God to deepen our appreciation of the infinite value of God becoming man because it is all we need and it is all we have. Secondly, so that's worship. Secondly, again, let this truth encourage your heart as well. Let it be your encouragement. Particularly if you, this evening, you feel particularly stuck in your life in some area, 
Perhaps you've come this evening and you feel a bit downcast over some issue. May I ask, are you currently doubting God? Are you feeling that your life is perhaps half full? Things you long for don't seem to be coming about. Or perhaps you're looking at your life and you're only seeing struggles with sin. Are you in the middle, for example, of a difficult relationship that may be weighing you down? Are you perhaps just feeling lonely in life? Does your life feel pointless at the moment? Well, whatever situation you're in this evening, fix your eyes, isn't it? Fix your eyes on the amazing blessing of the incarnation. God became man to die for you. Fix your eyes on Christ dying on that cross. In Jesus, the floodgates of mercy are opened for you and the fire of God's justice has been confined in his flames. Christ has accomplished that, beloved, for you. No matter what is going on in your life. Oh, what a joy it is to know that there is no sin that you will ever commit. If you're a true child of God, that will be so great as to eliminate this propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because Christ has been crushed in our place. You know, there's no longer, beloved, any distance between you and God. The sacrifice has been paid. You are now forever in the very presence of the triune God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me all the guilt within, upward, the hymn writer says, I look and say, Him, Him, our Lord Jesus, who made an end of all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look again on him and pardon me. What a joy that we have a Savior who God looks at and not me. This evening, if you're a true follower of Christ, let the sacrifice of Christ overwhelm you and encourage you in whatever situation you're in. At the same time, because God became man to be our sacrifice against sin, we must now labor, isn't it? to put sin to death in every part of our lives. You know, some people get worried when they hear that we need to focus on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, not what we do for him. They get worried about that. They start thinking, well, doesn't that give us a license to keep on disobeying God? And I think sometimes because they look at our Reformed churches, so full of theology but so weak in practical living, they ask a genuine question. Why is that? How can such knowledge and theology produce such weak Christianity in practice? Well, that's the devil. That's my answer. Because you see, true biblical work does the opposite. The sacrifice of Jesus does not make us lazy. It does not make us self-focused. It does not make us love sin. No, knowing my God became man to suffer the wrath of God in my place makes me love Jesus more. And it makes me hate my sin. It makes me hate the sin that crucified my Lord. You know, if a vicious criminal stabbed your daughter, or your wife, or your husband, or your brother, would you preserve that knife in a glass box, perhaps, and display it in the living room? Would you take it to your place of work? 
When you go out to Nando's, would you carry it? No, you would never want to see that knife again. You, know, you are done with that knife. You went to the police, just get rid of that. Don't ever see it. Beloved, our sin is that knife. We fool ourselves if we say Jesus is our sacrifice. And at the same time, we are willfully stabbing and crucifying him all over again without care. How can we love the sin that our best friend and redeemer died for? It doesn't make sense. True followers of Jesus do not hear that God graciously put on human flesh to bore the wrath and judgment of God and then start sinning. No, our reaction must be like that hymn, isn't it? When I think that God, his son, sparing, sent him to die, I scarcely can take it in. The hymn writer says, that on that cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sins. And then the hymn writer says, and sings, my soul, my savior, God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. That's the response of a child of God who's been transformed by grace. This truth doesn't make us lazy. It forces us to our knees in adoration of God. And it gives a new spring in the step, isn't it? It gives us a new resolve to put any remaining sin in our lives to death. We are to be like Charles Spurgeon who said, If Christ has died for me, and godly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? So a resolve to put sin to death. And finally, and I'll be quick. We must let this truth that God became man in Jesus to be the sacrifice for the sin of the children God gave them fuel our love for the children of God. If we are true followers of Jesus, we must allow Jesus to be the template that helps us draw the love of God on the canvas of the world around us. You know, in our midweek Bible studies in Philemon, which is being led by our brother Frederick, we are being challenged, aren't we, to love one another. And he's been challenging us. We show that love by forgiveness and reconciliation. We're also being challenged to show hospitality, to offer our time, our money, our food, our energy, our homes, and yes, even risk our health for the love of other believers. And we are feeling the weight. Well, I've been in a number of studies of those, and um, I've, not all of them admittedly, but I've felt the weight of what we are discussing. Because it is hard to forgive those who want nothing to do with us. It's hard to show love those to those who want nothing to do with us. It's hard to be hospitable when we have so little to go on. You know, in our society, especially when you think of forgiveness, our society is not very forgiving. We live in a cancel culture where one strike you are up. But even when forgiveness happens in our society, it's often partial, isn't it? When we forgive someone, they may still be punished, won't they? Because justice has to be done, right? And that's right. If a person kills someone's husband, the wife of the murdered man can forgive the killer, but the killer must still be jailed for that terrible crime. That's life in the fallen world. That's how justice works out. 
But in this passage, beloved, ponder it for a minute with me. In this passage, the sacrifice of Jesus, think about the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus does not just take away my sin, your sin. It defeats the devil. It defeats death. It defeats hell for you. And it gives you a new life. It is a comprehensive package. Forgiveness plus, 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 plus for eternity. Jesus has reconciled us to himself. But much more than that, we are now his children. The children God gave him. We are now his family. As I thought about that, it's like, it's like almost like, imagine the forgiven killer marrying the widow. It's mind-boggling. We killed Jesus with our sin. And he's welcomed us home. What amazing sacrifice. That's what Jesus has done for you. And it changes everything, doesn't it? Nah, I can go on for a long time, but for an end here. It changes everything. And one of the things it changes is that it makes it easier for us to forgive, reconcile, and be hospitable. How can we who have received the blessing of the sacrifice of God the Son for our sin struggle to give a little sacrifice to his children? How can we who have, who God willingly put on human flesh for all to die on that cross to grant us forgiveness, who were so willingly welcomed by God into his heaven by his precious blood, how can we fail to open our physical, earthly, nothing homes to others? How can we who have been given everything refuse or turn a blind light to those that may be financially struggling in this difficult time? How dare we even walk past someone sleeping on the street? We who were found worse than being on the streets. Unless we don't know Christ. Unless this glorious high priest is alien to us. But we do know him, don't we? And we do love him. We really do. We have this tension within us. We often live that we don't, but we know we do. The Spirit bears witness that we love Him. We know His blood has been shed for our sin. We believe this is why He came. He came for us, the elect children that God gave them. We believe we are the true and spiritual offspring of Abraham. But if we believe that, then this Christmas, let us go to Christ, our High Priest. Let us gaze afresh at the beauty of him becoming man. And let us ask him to renew our love for him. For surely, it is not angels that he helps. He didn't come for Gabriel, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. Amen.